Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. We've got two senior women from the corporate and governance side of racing with us today, from the legal and HR elements of the industry. This chat was going to cover a bit about the situation in other sports and other industries and a bit about their respective careers. But instead, it became a wide ranging conversation covering everything from making the tea in the boardroom to menopause to miscarriage. And as a little trigger warning, we do go into some of this in detail. But I'm delighted that today I'm joined by Catherine Belloff and Jane Greenman. Catherine is the Director of Legal, Governance and Business Partners at the British Horse Racing Authority. She joined the BHA in 2015 and has been a director since 2016. She has a son, Benjamin, who's eight, and a daughter, Lara, who was born just prior to the pandemic starting and is now two and a half. Jane is the Director of HR at Arena Racing Company. She joined Northern Racing in 2009 and became a director in 2012. Jane has been a single parent since 2021, and she has two children as well, a son, Hector, who's now 10, and a daughter, Indiana, who is six. There was a lot to fit in in this chat, so enjoy. How did you both kind of manage your kids and maternity leave? Because Catherine, you've obviously got quite a big um, age gap between yours. How did you kind of think about and plan what you were going to do in terms of the amount of time you took off you know did you know that in advance kind of how did you think about all those things yeah so for for my uh, son who was born when I was in in private practice I thought I would take a, a year well the best part of a year off um which is which is what I did um the firm that I worked at had a you know a, a pretty decent maternity leave package it, it was what happened when you came back from maternity leave that, that that wasn't so great um and then the gap between them I mean like like most people you have kind of grand plans about the order in which you're going to have your kids and the precise timelines and that completely <laughs> didn't go as I'd anticipated so we've got a very large gap um and I yeah I had my daughter um obviously when I was at the BHA and yeah again decided up front that I would take it would take less than a, a, a year that time um but yeah it was about nine nine months in the end and I was going to ask you about the differences between different industries but I just wondered if you would expand a little bit on what you meant when you came back from you and you said it's about what happened when you came back from maternity leave because I think that's we've spoken briefly about that kind of return from maternity in the context of the racing industry a little bit and how it can be a really difficult time in terms of confidence gaps in your career being viewed negatively all those sorts of things. Can you just t- chat a little bit about your experience of that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, you know, bear in mind that this was eight years ago. So I think I think a lot has changed 
everywhere, particularly post-pandemic. But when I came back, I, um, well, I, I originally asked for, for an arrangement where I could work one day a week from home, four days in the office, one day a week from home. They wouldn't allow that, um, you know, with, with, kind of, with kind of post-pandemic, it seems incredible. But um, the fear or the fear expressed to me at the time was, um, well, you know, if, if we let you work a day from home, then, you know, we're going to have to let everybody work a day from home, regardless of their circumstances and everything's going to fall apart. Um, so I went back to the office five days a week and the arrangement I had was that I would leave in order to put my son to bed, which meant leaving at around kind of five thirty, six o'clock. And then I would work after he was in bed. And in practice, that meant working till two, three, four in the morning, you know, pretty regularly. And with a baby, he didn't sleep that well. It, it was just completely kind of <laughs> unsustainable. Um, and then the kind of stress and guilt on top of that of, am I going to be able to leave this meeting in time in order to make it home for, for bedtime? Um, so I stayed for about a year after I came back from maternity leave. And in the end, I took a, a snap decision to leave um and I'm an incredibly risk averse person and I have a mortgage so, so uh it's probably the most risky thing I've ever done to leave a job without another job to to go to um but I yeah I couldn't I couldn't keep up those kind of working hours um you know for for, for long term and, and luckily I wasn't out of work for, for for very long. Catherine you must have been on your knees yeah well I mean when it's your first you have nothing to compare it com- yeah, compare it to yeah. you know and I you know it wasn't that I thought you know being a working mother would be sort of a piece of cake but um I mean, t- to be honest it was more it was more the kind of guilt factor than the actual hours the kind of worry about not being able to be in the right place at the right time rather than having to work very late at night um and you know obviously it's, you know it's, it's just so different now in terms of attitudes to, to to flexible working and I'm sure law firms are different now as well albeit I suspect still some way behind other industries. Which is interesting because I think one thing that has come up a lot is this idea that you know racing is very traditional, racing is very backward, racing is very inward facing and you know that we that we're the ones that are behind and so I actually find it really interesting when you speak to people from other professions and um, I have friends who are lawyers now who still work those kinds of hours and and whether you're at home or not now they're just suffering in their bedrooms (laughs) instead of suffering in an office and I think it's it's kind of a bit reassuring in a way that actually a lot of good work is happening in racing and there's a lot of forward thinking people that are particularly as you say post-pandemic the world has changed on its head about flexible working and working from home undoubtedly which is I you know is a good thing it's one of the good things to have come out of COVID I think um that that kind of flexibility is now is now there when it when it wasn't before which is actually great for, particularly for working parents the, the racing home report is fantastic I mean I, I can't imagine a, a law firm certainly eight years ago having taken it upon themselves to you know take an interest in that kind of research and to fund it and to follow it through in, in the way that that this has been done so you know whilst there is obviously a lot to do in racing I think it it isn't as far behind as sometimes we like to portray ourselves. 
And Jane, tell me about your experiences because your kids are, um, well, your your older one's a little bit older than, than Catherine's, but similar age. How how did you find that? Because you've obviously been at ARC for a long time and we're fairly established there. Absolutely. I had two very, very different, but both actually quite positive um, experiences, uh, which when you hear the first part of it, you might think, well, how can that be positive? But it, it, it was OK. Um, so when I had my son, it was 2012, um, which obviously was the year that Northern Racing and Arena um, PLC merged. So um, before I was due to go on maternity leave, I put myself at risk of redundancy, <laughs> um, as you do. And um, I trotted off onto my paternity leave. Uh, the merger obviously went ahead and um, and uh, everything kind of settled whilst I was off and away enjoying my uh, time with my little boy. Took nine months off with him. And shortly before I was due to come back off maternity leave, uh, my boss at the time, which was Tony Kelly, the MD, called me up and said, um, we want to talk to you about, you know, the role that you're going to come back into. Um, we want you to take up a bigger position um, and come down and talk to us. So I weebled my way down to London, um, about seven seven months pregnant, I think I was at the time, and um, went and had a chat with him and with a few other people as well, and was delighted really to have been offered the opportunity to come into the role that I'm in now, which is the HRD role. So that was an incredibly positive experience for me. It wasn't something I was expecting and... Um, it was amazing. The, the of course the the flip side of that and the the pendulum which I think has been described on the, some of the previous episodes was that I was needed really to be in London for two to three days a week, usually three days, and and living up in the Midlands as I do, um, that was quite a commute. So quite often I do remember. I think some of it I've blocked out, but uh, I do remember <laughs> rushing back up and and. Um, trying to get back for for bedtimes um with him and quite often not making that and and, and as Catherine quite rightly said you, you get the guilt then of, of of being there or not being there so that was that was with my eldest child and then of course with my uh, with my daughter I had her in 2016 so it was not too much longer um after Martin Crudus had started the business um massively supportive um encouraged me to take as much time off as I needed and uh Julia took a year off with my daughter actually um and when I came back to work I used my holidays so and I think this is the interesting point for me I think part of the fact that I'm so aware of my rights anyway so I know what I can and can't do or what I can and can't say I I proposed that I would do a phased return to work and I used my holidays to do that over a three-month period um, and as part of that process made a flexible working application which um really I'd proven that that could work by virtue of coming back. So um, Martin very happily accepted that and has continued to be hugely supportive of all the ins and outs of motherhood that I've um, that I've been through since. So, um, so yeah, so quite different in terms, I was thinking about it and I thought, well, actually I was offered a promotion <laughs> during my first maternity leave and then, uh, but without the flexibility and then subsequently um, coming back to work offered, offered the flexibility that I didn't get the first time round. So really for me, I've been incredibly um, lucky um, and I, I feel like I've given back um, as a result of that to the business so so yeah it's been two two interesting experiences and I was going to ask you with your HR hat on how do you juggled or managed I guess your own team and people below you in the business you know making sure that they're aware of their rights and that they apply them whilst also 
planning for the business future and making sure that things are covered and that the work is done how do you kind of marry those I guess it's the sort of professional and personal really Jane yeah so I, I tend to be um, a big hand holder when it comes to, to to pregnant people which actually interestingly isn't always right and of course you've got to flex your approach to it but but I I make pains to make sure that people, um, as soon as they notify that they're pregnant, obviously they're going to get the policy straight away. Um, and I'm going to explain to them what all of their options are and, and how we can help them and support that. Um, I was thinking about employers' kind of own goals, um, of which we've you know been subject to some of them. Um, and some things that, as an employer, perhaps, you don't always think about when people are on maternity leave, although, of course, you should. Um, it's just things that tend to slip, slip, um, slip between the net. Things like, you know, forgetting to tell somebody they've got a new line manager while they're off on maternity leave and, you know, um, having somebody, somebody's email get switched off. And, of course, when you come back from maternity leave, if your email is switched off, that makes you feel very you know, very like, oh, well, they obviously weren't expecting me to come back. And, and I was trying, I was trying to think about how difficult that must be for, for, for a smaller employer as well. But, but, but yeah, so, so I'm, I'm a handholder. I, I try and make sure that, um, that myself and the team that work for me are supporting the women across the business as they're coming back from maternity leave. But, but then we have the benefit of that, you know, we've got, we've got a, a good sized team and um, a really professional as well. So, yeah. And so from an HR perspective, um, when people notify you that they are pregnant, what, apart from sort of letting them know their rights and stuff, what are the sort of steps that you would go through as a team to support people? Um, like what's your sort of HR responsibilities, I guess, to the people in your business? So we we always do a risk assessment straight away, which I think feeds into to, to some of the things that things pe- people have said previously, which is actually the earlier you can tell your employer, the better we can look after your health and safety as a, as a kind of a, a pregnant woman. Um, quite often people will, will leave it for a significant period of time. And additionally, I do I do remember without naming names, a clerk of the course who purposely didn't tell us until um, she was about 17 or 18 weeks because she knew that potentially that might have an impact on her ability to do certain parts of her role which you know may or it may or may not have done um but i think the earlier you can be told that the better you can look after somebody so making sure they know their rights making sure that you know that that anything that needs to be adjusted can be adjusted to support them throughout the remainder of their pregnancy as well everybody's individual about when they want to tell their employer aren't they but actually you know certainly I know vet friends of mine, you have to start telling people some, you have to tell somebody immediately because you can't take x-rays anymore. So that, you know, then you have the opposite pressure of having to tell someone really quickly, which actually is in its own right, is not necessarily the thing that everybody wants to do. And Catherine, you've, as well as um, having a very big, important job at the BHA, you also chair the British Association of Sports and Law. What are your sort of experiences in there in terms of touching on other sports like have you have you seen or heard discussions around anything to do with kind of working families working practices family life etc in in other sports and people you've come across have you you know do you met do you meet many other working mothers in in other sports as well I do meet working mothers in other sports I mean pri- actually primarily through through other forums so for example that you know the sport and recreation alliance runs a general councils group where you get together with your opposite numbers from, from, from other sports yeah I mean I think that the, the sports that I've had most touch points with and worked in previously are uh, football um, cricket and um, you know quite some years ago now um, athletics I mean you know certainly I think football has always been the you know 
perception of being incredibly male dominated and slow to change but in terms of the FA my opposite number there is a woman with children and I, you know she's been there many many years and I think has had a, a, a fantastic experience so you know I think that you know the governing bodies are getting a lot better and a lot of that is to do with the sports governance code and really being forced to reform at, at risk of, of losing funding and that's you know, been in place since the end of 2016. So we've, you know, we've had, a, it's onto its second iteration. So we had a good kind of bedding in period now. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is, Catherine, the Sports Governance Code, briefly? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so that was a governance code that was developed specifically for, for sporting bodies um, by UK Sport and Sport England. So the main funding bodies for, for, for British sports. And it's got three tiers to it depending on the level of funding you receive so if you're a major governing body receiving lots of funding you'd be at tier three and then if you you know if you're a kind of small local association you'd be at tier, tier one and it's got sort of um phased um requirements depending on, on which tier you're at um but a lot of the the publicity around it has been in relation to um the major sports and things like improving diversity on their board so one of the, the major things it did was um require at least 30% of each gender to be on the board, you know, which going back to 2016, if you were the RFU or the FA, that that was really pretty tough to comply with, um, particularly given that the boards didn't have sole responsibility for appointing people to their boards. They were dependent on people coming through from their constituent bodies who were probably very male dominated as well. And the, the, the BHA doesn't receive public funding in that form. So we haven't been strictly obliged to comply. But the board has definitely kind of hold, held it up as, as the gold standard and we've tried to comply with it. And I think it's made a massive difference having that, um, you know, that 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 benchmark um, to, to set ourselves against and, you know, obviously not wanting to, to fall behind the other major sports in terms of our governance. I think the element of stick as well as carrot has been really helpful in sport because a lot of sports, including racing, have such convoluted decision-making structures that even if the majority have the will to change something because it's they know that it's the right thing to do, getting that through your, your series of decision-making structures is another issue altogether. So if there's something that says you have to or you'll lose your funding, it just kind of focuses focuses minds I think you can get stuff done more quickly do you think as well public perception is quite important as well because I I, I, th- I think quite often I think I look at things like um, the, the recent kind of tide of opinion on, on menopause and kind of later reproductive health is, is really is really helpful to me within my role because it, it just opens up your ability to be able to have discussions about these things so I've often thought you know happy days more the more Davina's on the TV talking about uh, talking about reproductive health and menopause the, the easier it is for us to, to make changes in in the workplace because people people just get on board with it don't they and I think that then feeds back in through the governance structures as well and have you taken on board that menopause because we we are going to have a later whole episode about menopause funnily enough excellent tie in Jane thank you um but but have you have you brought that in or, or, or you know you say that it's easier to have those conversations how has that kind of awareness through Davina and 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 Meg Matthews and people talking about it impacted not just your work but the company as a whole do you think Jane yeah I, I think it's it's 
for us, we're quite early on that on that journey. So we, I, I think whatever's going on, you're focusing on different parts of, of, of well, it's different ends of the same string, really, isn't it? But um, the the later stuff, really, for us, we're just starting to open up conversations about it. So we, whilst we haven't got a formal policy in place at this moment in time, I think it is probably something that we will do um, probably at some point this year. So um, I just think it's helpful. Anything like that, um, discussions around miscarriage, discussions around just, you know, all these discussions that we're having now um, and anything that we can do to raise awareness. And actually, you know, it's women advocating for women. Um, And I think traditionally speaking, we've not been very good at doing that. So I think the more that we can do that, the better, the better outcome for everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so many conversations that, you know, it's becoming more acceptable to have like I was having a conversation at work yesterday with someone I work with about periods for example which I feel that is probably not a conversation we would have had five years ago no um no. but but we were both having a struggling day and it was kind of refreshing to be able to be like you know this is bad I feel bad I feel awful she was like yeah me too and you know it's just kind of when you think actually you get that solidarity or whether you're at menopause through menopause. And, and I have mentioned on the podcast before that people have come up to me since we've started this series and said to me, I'm really worried about doing my job badly because of the effects of brain fog, you know, which, or, or making a mistake at work that could lead me to be fired. And that's a very, I think, sobering prospect for people and whether that's, you know, brain fog from COVID or brain fog from menopause or just, complete exhaustion when you've got a newborn baby it's and like Catherine you're working 20 hours a day with no sleep whatsoever and I just think those things the more we talk about them the easier it is and the better it is as well it is and like you said it's solidarity isn't it if we're all going through these things together which inevitably we are all bit at different slightly different times then we can we can support each other and and the only way we can do that is through some open discussion and, and actually having the conversations in the first place so it can only be a good thing and you alluded very briefly to miscarriage there, Jane. And um, I understand that you had a miscarriage yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I've, I'm incredibly good at getting pregnant and incredibly bad at staying pregnant, I think is probably the way I would describe it. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> the same problem. I um, Yeah, I've, I've been pregnant six times and I have two children. So um, you can you can do the maths on that one. But um yeah I think it, that's so interesting because that happened um you know back pr- before 2012 and then at, uh, subsequent to 2012 briefly before I had my daughter and then I just wrote it off then I thought best stop best stop trying this now but, but actually the physical uh, and of course the mental impact of that is really very difficult um and you know the first time you get pregnant you're obviously massively excited and then every subsequent pregnancy is actually fraught with worry and you know uh, some people really struggle with it uh, and I certainly did struggle with it as well um and I tried to think actually in advance of kind of chatting to you ladies today how much I actually said to to work at the time so my my boss at the time would have been Julie Harrington um so she'd probably know better than I would. But um, I, I can't remember how sort of open I was. I certainly was open with my colleagues that I, that I was kind of within the office environment with. But it was physically very challenging. So I was, you know, 
still in work for, for parts of, of, of the, the, the sort of physical process. Um, and I probably didn't really take any time um, off to, to try and look after myself and look after my mental health afterwards, which I think probably had a knock on effect a bit later on um, in my career when I, um, I had a, a further miscarriage. And then my dad passed away quite unexpectedly a few weeks later. And I kind of had a big crash and, and really, really struggled um, uh, and had not a breakdown per se, but I, I was I was certainly very anxious and very just not able to, to function well enough to, to be in work for a period of time. And again, work were incredibly supportive and, and that was incre- really helpful. But but it's just the whole thing. It's just so difficult. And I know so many colleagues and people, you know, that I would class as friends within work who have been through the same same situation um it doesn't matter if it's one miscarriage three miscarriages you know it's it's awful at whatever point it happens so yeah yeah really difficult Mm. and did Catherine did you feel that you could take time off work when that happened to you or or were you able to be open do you think or because I think that the sort of secrecy around it and Jane the fact that you have said that you were present at work during the sort of physical moment that that's happening I just is so hard but is also not at all uncommon and the number of friends who have said to me I was teaching a lesson taking consultations whatever it is like literally just getting on with their job whilst in the midst of a miscarriage and it's it is it is incredibly common but but nonetheless just when you say it out loud it's kind of quite shocking I think to some people that that actually that is actually what women go through (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it happened to me twice in fairly quick succession, sort of 2017, 2018. And I remember my, so my boss at the time was Nick Rust. And I think I emailed him, you know, each time to say, this has happened. I, you know, I'll need a day off, you know, and I'm sure got a lovely email in return, you know, with sort of, you know, take all the time and, and space you need. But I think I think I'm pretty sure I only took a day off for the kind of procedure itself and possibly the next day off while you're still in the kind of fog of the anaesthetic and that was it. I mean, I'm sure I could have, well, yeah, I know I could have taken more time off, but I think part of for me part of trying to recover from it was um sort of throwing myself back into work and trying not to think about it and you know I think it it was particularly um kind of devastating for me first time around because I'm naive and naive as it sounds I've never really considered it as a possibility you know I'd got pregnant and I had my son I got pregnant again it never occurred to me not incredibly naively that something would um go wrong and then I think probably the biggest effect was then when I got pregnant with my daughter who I now have I was terrified every day that I was going to lose her and that actually led I think to far more problems at work because I'd sort of literally kind of suddenly have a panic attack that she hadn't moved or um you know even before the stage where you get you feel the baby moving that you know something had gone wrong and you know should I run off to a clinic and have a scan and pay goodness knows how many hundred pounds for that and you kind of get into this cycle of um you know just not being able to let your mind get off the the fact that you might um lose the baby so yeah that 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 in a way I found 
worse than when I actually had miscarriages. Um, and then I did subsequently discover that, um, you know, a number of colleagues had been through the same thing and I'd never, I'd never known about it. And I think that, you know, there definitely wasn't the kind of culture of talking about it then. But when I did start to talk to people, they were then incredibly open about it. And, you know, that it was, it was a relief to know that there were other people at work who sort of understood it and had been through the same thing. God, I'm so sorry for both of you, but um, thank you for speaking very honestly and candidly because it's it's not an easy subject, but I think it is a really important one. And I think that, like you say, the more we kind of show people that it's okay to to open up with colleagues, even if that's not your boss, it might be somebody else in your working environment who is trusted just somebody that you can share with, I think is is a really important thing. And it's definitely a, an area that I think in the workplace, again, a bit like a bit like menopause, I think, I don't know about what you think, Jane, but I'm sure we're going to start seeing changes in policy around miscarriage. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no question. And it, you know, again, it's driven, it's driven by the people going through it. You know, I, I think as you go through things at work, you, you automatically, you know, you become more sympathetic, more empathetic about it. And therefore you want to make sure that those that follow after you, um, which I'm lucky to be able to do that within my role, aren't, you know, aren't struggling or as struggling as least they possibly can. So, yeah. And the other thing I was just going to speak to you both about, which we sort of alluded to, Catherine sort of opened when she said this was eight years ago, so things have changed a lot. Um, you've obviously both been professional women for, you know, 20 years, I, I would imagine-ish. And um, you've both got very kind of successful, very good careers. What are the sort of changes that you've seen over your working lives for for the good or, or perhaps for the negative, perhaps around family life? And what do you think you were expecting maybe would have changed more than it has in the course of your careers so far? I, I think for me, um, and this is this is much more of a recent change actually, and it's and it's probably born out of me recognising it in my own situation. Is the, the and again, it's probably something that going forward will be something that is recognised by more employers, but um, more men taking a, a primary caring role. Um, my my now ex husband did exactly that with my with my son and subsequently my daughter, um, and that is the thing that I notice on the school run now is that is the is the number of men taking those roles, and I d- I don't think that society's quite caught up with that yet. Certainly legislatively, in terms of the um, you know the benefits that are available to men, paternity leave is embarrassing when you when you think about how many men have to just go I'll take a couple of weeks holiday because I can't survive on you know 100 whatever pounds it is a week for two weeks um shared parental leave is grossly overcomplicated and 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 just not well well taken up at all so I think that's been the main thing that I've noticed in terms of the family life strangely Mm. A friend of mine was just tweeting actually about he he works in academia and has didn't take any didn't take any paternity leave with his first child, but has just taken shared parental leave with his second child. He would have been planning to read all these books, maybe write a book, learn a lot of the language, and he said, I didn't really realise how busy it is looking after a child full time. And I thought yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is, to be honest, <laughs> which I think is is kind of, uh, you know, it sounds so silly to say it out loud, but I'm sure there is a perception of like, oh, she's just having a lovely time. She's just having coffee on maternity leave and going to yoga and, you know, hanging out with other mummies, which clearly is a fallacy by the sounds of things, Jane. 
it is. It's really hard because, of course, you you kind of want to keep half an eye on work, even though you probably really shouldn't be. Um, and uh, you you know you want to do the best by your your baby, and you know give them all lots of lovely experiences. We did your first baby. I don't know if you're the same, Catherine, but with the second baby, you just kind of go, nah, don't worry. <laughs> you'll be fine. Um, but yeah, and, and making friends and making sure that you maintain those friends, and yeah, it, it's it's busy. Well, my daughter was born just before the first lockdown. So, you know, I had, you know, I knew I wouldn't have any free time on maternity leave, but I had envisaged, you know, kind of going to lots of baby classes and kind of doing that nice kind of stuff. And um, obviously for the first kind of three months, you're basically just kind of recovering anyway. And then we went into lockdown and, you know, obviously completely derailed all of that. So she was, you know, totally isolated and didn't even see her grandparents for, you know, the kind of first six months um but it meant that um my head of legal who had kindly offered to take on my role while I was on maternity leave ended up um doing my role during lockdown during school closure she's got three small boys she was homeschooling them for half the day working for the other half swapping with her husband and then working into the night so I inadvertently left her in (laughs) horrific situation um which um uh, I uh kindly she's forgiven me for but it you know it you know how working parents coped during you know lockdown um and the schools being closed is you know is a whole other angle to it and Catherine how did you find um having a newborn baby in the lockdown because that's something that we haven't actually touched on with anybody yet that's quite a unique experience and I imagine was quite obviously quite different to the first time around how was that as a sort of uh, as an overall experience I guess um I found it really isolating to be honest because I'm I'm not great at the kind of first year of baby life anyway you know I find that really hard with the you know feeding or won't they feed and sleeping or won't they sleep um and my way of dealing with it first time around was just to try and get outside a lot and be around other people and just have that kind of social connection you know with other mothers you know even if it was people you didn't know terribly well and so you know to be kind of completely cut off from everything I found incredibly difficult so you know on the one hand I was lucky that I didn't have to do that work school homeschool juggling act um but I think it you know it did make me more keen to go back to work earlier just to have some adult interaction even though it was only over zoom so I think particularly when for first time parents the isolation associated with with COVID as well would be extremely difficult because you haven't got a clue what's normal or not you know and that not having anyone else to kind of bounce off and spend time with socially it's it's really really hard but um and Catherine did you want to say anything about developments during your career we've sort of we sort of sidetracked a little bit there um but I'm just gonna I was just gonna swing that around to you before we finish um I mean I think it's it's changed massively for you know for women as well as for mothers I mean when you know when I think about meetings that I used to go into as a trainee lawyer or or as a newly qualified lawyer and you know when I started working sort of specifically in sports you know you were nearly always the only woman in the room and there was an expectation that you were either there 
well, sort of at best to take some notes, at worst, you know, possibly to carry your boss's bag and to pour some tea for everybody. Um, <laughs> That's one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given: was never ever pour the tea. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I was given, uh, I was given the same same advice uh, by uh, by someone who who worked at the Premier League. In fact, who then went on to be chief executive of, of various football related um, businesses. But yes, she said she said that to me as well, um, and I tried to take it to heart um and you know I think that you know there was kind of so many kind of sexist comments that it you just sort of filtered it out it just was sort of the background to your work you didn't really kind of take it take it on board you know and now you know things have massively changed and you know the the BHA has just come off the back of well obviously we've still got a a female chief executive but having a female chair as well and I think you know certainly for, for me working for you know two really high profile, really successful women who've been through long careers, who both have children, you know, that that's been a a massive inspiration and I think it, you know, has really kind of changed the the ethos at, at, at the BHA, having those, you know, having those two role models in place. Just to jump in here for a moment. If you're interested in hearing more from Anna-Marie Phelps, formerly chair of the BHA, and Julie Harrington, the current CEO, then do head to the Women in Racing website. We had a chat with each of them during the pandemic about their respective careers, and those conversations are still available to watch. I finished by throwing open the floor to both Catherine and Jane to get their final thoughts. I suppose it does relate to motherhood, but I mean, I suppose, you know, an issue that we're we're sort of starting to talk a lot more about at the BHA, um, you know, is in relation to trans inclusion and, you know, obviously the huge issue, you know, in other sports where they're grappling with the issue of trans participation in, in sports, you know, less so for racing, given that men and women um, compete on on equal terms. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like that is going to become a bigger conversation within the sports. So, you know, I'm sure, already, you know, it may, may already be amongst race courses as, as well but the sort of particular challenges that that um, presents in, in relation to motherhood and parenthood and um, whether we're doing everything we should be in the sport to support that yeah and I signaled um, in the episode with David and Leo we talked a little about transparenting and um, there are a few resources in that episode and there's particularly good podcast series with some resources around that if people are interested in learning more I think certainly in the last couple of years um, we have seen on course uh, a few more trans staff coming from different race yards as well, which is really encouraging to see that people are feeling like when they're going through transition, they still want to come racing, which is really great, really nice. Uh, but yeah, I think Catherine, that's a, it's a very pertinent point that that certainly is an area around parenthood that um, is, is definitely going to need to be managed by businesses, I think within the industry over the next couple of years, definitely. And Jane, anything from you? Um I was just thinking about uh, women returning from from maternity leave, and just really for for me, being as I've got a voice today, which doesn't always happen very often, but just to, to remind women coming back that actually maternity leave and and having children is one of the greatest uh, leadership training courses you can ever have. You know, you become absolutely brilliant at multitasking. You know, adapting your style to uh, to, to to the little creatures that are running around and not doing what you're asking them to do. So you can, you become very good at negotiating with tyrants. Exactly. Yeah. So if you've got ambitions <laughs> to be in a leadership position, then motherhood, in my view, is an excellent training ground. And how do you think we can kind of encourage 
employers to see that as well, Jane? Because I think one thing we've touched on a little bit is the sort of slight differences between perhaps the corporate side of the industry and the perhaps we'll call it the SME or the small business side of the industry rather than, you know, the big organisations like the BHA or ARC, for example, that have big HR departments, big legal departments. We've got very set policies. Things are very kind of well-established, well-developed. What advice would you give to women returning to work who have got ambition and, and, and would love to take up those sorts of leadership roles, but perhaps the the wheels aren't moving in quite the same way in their workplace, let's put it that way? Yeah, I, I think I, I always counsel uh, any any women really that are around me, whether it's to do with parenthood or otherwise, um, to think about how you're adding value to your organisation. I think as soon as you get that that kind of credit in your bank, then it allows you to open up some bigger conversations about your future and your career and your own development. Um, I think as well, for women, if you were returning to, to like you say, a, a smaller organisation that hasn't necessarily got those, those wheels in motion, actually go and talk to other women in the industry who are in leadership positions, you know, use the Women in Racing Mentor Scheme and try and find other routes through that allow you to identify what your gaps might be and actually you know in some cases manage to fill them and then you can go and present to your employer you know why you think you could take a bigger role within that business Mm. great advice Um, and yeah the women in racing mentor scheme just head to the website for that there is loads of information we have got heaps of incredible different mentors uh, for you to benefit from it's a really really good scheme and I know there's lots of women in the industry who have um, really benefited from the wisdom and support that they have received from their mentors who really cover quite a wide range within racing so um, thank you for that nod Jane and it's included as part of the membership which is only £25 a year so do check out the membership. All details are on the website at womeninracing.co.uk. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land. It would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry. And we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. So see you then.